Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Take a look at Isaiah 57 here. I don't know if you're like me, but um, I used to get a little depressed right after Christmas. Actually, uh, for me and our family, it used to begin the afternoon of Christmas Day. Uh, we had, a, I guess it's a weird tradition. I didn't know it was weird until I learned that people did it other ways. But we always opened Christmas presents on Christmas Eve. We'd go to church, we'd come home, we'd have uh, oyster stew. My grandpa always had that. I don't know if this is an upper Midwest thing, an Iowa thing or what, but we always opened Christmas presents on Christmas Eve. And um, we had like stocking presents Christmas Day. But by the time Christmas afternoon rolled around on Christmas Day, it was kind of like everything. Um, the festivities, the celebrations, everything that I might have considered special about Christmas, it had all kind of just come to an immediate and abrupt halt. And everything was a bit of a mess. And um, there were still tables full of sweet treats and leftover Christmas dinner left out everywhere. But honestly, I had eaten so much. But at that point, I had no interest in anything that had widened my eyes uh, just days earlier. Have you ever felt that same way once Christmas has passed? This week has always been kind of that for me. Um, and, I, and here in Isaiah 57, we're just going to look at one verse, verse 15. But it's my desire that the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ will take the word of God and, and awaken uh, the spirit of Christmas for us this evening. As we meditate on, on this verse, that, that's what should happen. Because, of course, Christmas is not... Uh, all about the presents and, and the culinary wonders and the festivities that, that have now ceased. Christmas is about Emmanuel, God with us. Amen? And that, do, that doesn't stop <laughs> just because a Christmas celebration uh, is, is done. More than anything else, we ought to have celebrated and we ought to continue uh, to celebrate God coming to save us in Jesus Christ and that's what Isaiah 57, 15 reminds us of. And if we'll grab a hold of that truth that God has for us here in this verse, Christmas can continue for the contrite. Let's read it. Isaiah 57, 15 says, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth in eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. And with him also, that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this verse tonight that you've given us here, I pray that you would show us the truth that's in there. It would encourage us. It would recharge us. It would remind us that we can continue to celebrate uh, what Christmas is really about because, um, because we have Jesus with us. We have God with us, and that's something that we're always going to have. And we're going to have it uh, one day. We're going to have it in, in, in a real way where faith uh, will, will no longer be just faith. Faith will be sight. And so until that day comes, we're thankful for your Holy Spirit, um, who, who is the, the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ and is dwelling with us. God, teach us that this evening. Help us to celebrate that um, blessing that we have, that gift that we have in the Holy Spirit. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Right, in the first part of verse 15, uh, what's described as God's celestial residence, we sang about it just a minute ago. That's a Revelation song. You get a glimpse uh, into heaven there and what it's like. Uh, but in the first 14 verses of Isaiah 57, uh, God has Isaiah preach to God's people, calling them to repentance. Uh, they had been idolatrous. They had been worshiping other gods. They had been full of pride. And in their worship of these false gods, they had been wickedly immoral. And then we come to verse 15, and God does something here that is so important. It is the essential, uh, at least initial component for anyone to be saved from a lifestyle of sin and turn to him for salvation. God describes himself. He tells us who he is in the first part of verse 15 and also where he is. He is the high and lofty one. He inhabits eternity. His name is holy, and he dwells in a high and holy place. And let's pause there because there's, there's a lot there in those brief descriptions. If we are ever going to be made right with God, if we will ever be saved by God's grace, the first thing that we have to understand is God's great majesty. Uh, in order to experience the salvation that God's provided for us in Jesus Christ, we must have a proper understanding, first of all, uh, of who God is, and then secondly, of who we are. If we do not get those two things right in our minds and in our hearts, well, there's no hope for you and I being saved. There's no hope for us having new life in Christ now and eternal life with Christ one coming day. Uh, we're told here by God who God is. He is the high and lofty one. And what is insinuated there is that we are not. Uh, in fact, this is unique and exclusive to God. We could say he is the highest and the loftiest one. And we are told here by God that he, in, he inhabits eternity. And again, the implication is that no one else does. Uh, he alone is not bound by time. He has no beginning. He has no end. He created time, and he created it for us when he created the universe, as it's recorded back in Genesis chapter 1. But, but God alone exists in what C.S. Lewis termed the eternal now. Every moment, our, our past, history past, and, and what will be future for us, God experiences that as a present moment. Does your brain hurt when you think about that? Mine does. Um, let's just believe what God is saying about who he is in his word. Let's just worship him uh, for revealing who he is. Verse 15 goes on to say that his name is holy. And his name is holy because that's who he is. And there's a lot wrapped up in that short name, holy. Once again, there's an inference in the Hebrew word for holy, kadash, that, that means he is like no one else. Uh, there's nothing else like him. He is a creator. And everything else is creation. And the other aspect of him and his name being holy is that he is entirely without sin. And he can't bear its presence. He can't tolerate its presence. Um, it's an affront to who he is. It's an assault on who he is. And that's a problem. That's a problem for, for you and I. Um, sin does not exist in a vacuum like it's just sin out there. Sin exists because sinners exist. Sin happens because sinners sin. 
We choose to assault God's holiness. We choose to assault God's glory, the, the majesty that this verse has so far described. And God says just two chapters later in Isaiah 59, 2, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. Because God is holy and his name is holy because of God's glory and majesty, he cannot tolerate the presence of sin. And so when we sin, there's a separation between us and him. It's a deadly division. And um, that's a problem for us, isn't it? It's our problem. And, and it's a, a problem that we need to be fixed. It's our greatest need. And what makes that problem worse is that we can't do anything about it in and of ourselves. Verse 15 wraps up this description of who God is and where he is by informing us that he dwells in a high and holy place. And this isn't the first time God's majestic glory and celestial resonance is described for us in this prophetic book that God had Isaiah write. Just for a moment, keep right here because we're going to come back here and finish up this verse. The good part's coming up. Uh, but will you turn with me back to Isaiah chapter 6 because we get, we get the first glimpse into this throne room, really a parallel passage, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Isaiah here gets a vision from God. Isaiah is in the temple in the year that King Uzziah died, and in verses 1 through 6, God grants Isaiah this glimpse into God's celestial residence. We'll actually read through verse 7. Verse 1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. And then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. But then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs from the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. This whole scene is quite majestic, isn't it? I mean, beginning in, in verse 1 uh, especially. Uh, definite parallels with what we read in Isaiah 57, 15. Isaiah sees the Lord sitting upon his throne uh, up in heaven. He's high and lifted up. We've got that term again. It says his train filled the temple. As awestruck and frightened as Isaiah may have been right then, and, and we'll learn that he was according to verse 5, I do believe that he was comforted to some degree here. Isaiah's earthly king had just died. King Uzziah had just died. But Isaiah's given a reminder here that God is still on the throne. And God's still on the throne today, isn't he? He is. And he's high and lifted up. It says his train filled the temple. I'm talking about the, the back part of, of his robe. Do you remember when Queen Elizabeth passed a couple of months ago? Do you remember uh, all the pomp and the majesty that was associated with her funeral services? Multiple. I mean, whether it was the number of attendants or the size and sparkle of her crown or the length of a king or a queen's train, the flowing back part of the robe, the bigger it all is, the more glorious communicated whenever it comes to royalty. And well, this, this king, the Lord our God, it says his train fills the temple, fills it. I don't know for sure if that's referring to the throne room of heaven or the temple where in Jerusalem where Isaiah received this vision, but either way, 
Very big place. Very big. I want you to compare it to the sanctuary right here. Just imagine um, the, the train, and, and this is Christ. I believe it's Christ because of what happens with the seraphim and, and taking the, the coal from the altar. And, you know, Jesus Christ was that sacrifice. But the train, it fills that aisle, and it fills this aisle, and it fills that aisle, and in between every pew, and, and the back, the foyer, the, the platform up here, and from floor to ceiling because it says it fills. It fills the temple. So we've got no question here about how majestic this one is. So what's the point of Isaiah's vision here, of all of God's majesty and, and all of God's glory? The, the seraphims in, in verse 2, the, the temple door foundations shaking when they sing, holy, holy, holy. What's the point of Isaiah 57.15's description that we looked at earlier, the, the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, who lives in this high and holy place, this celestial resonance? What's the point? God is king. God is sovereign. God is holy. And this creator God who is all of this, he has commanded his creation uh, to reflect his character by also being holy. What's our track record like? Yours, mine. Hmm. So we got a problem, don't we? Well, that's Isaiah's reaction here in Isaiah 6.5 when he says, woe is me. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Me too, Isaiah. Same. And we read verses 6 and 7 earlier, and they just describe our great hope in this desperate situation. And it's exactly what the second part of Isaiah 57.15 describes. Will you go back there to Isaiah 57.15? And we learn here of God's terrestrial residence. There are three little words that I'm so thankful for here in the middle of this verse that bridge the gap between the first part of verse 15 and the rest of it. Those, those three little words, with him also, they are the reason for the season we just celebrated. They're the reason for the season of Christmas. They are like an inhale before the gospel's exhaled in the rest of verse 15. If you are someone who marks your Bible for life-changing truths you might need to remember when Satan attacks, I suggest you highlight or underline those three little words. Um, they're the beginning of a new revelation of who God is uh, and where he is because um, he doesn't just have a celestial residence. Uh, that high and holy throne room of heaven that Isaiah saw in chapter 6 and that we sang about, uh, know this majestic, uh, high and lofty one whose name is holy, who inhabits eternity. He also, it says here in verse 15, he also dwells with him that is of a contrite and humble spirit with a purpose, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. And let's focus in on God's terrestrial residence here because this is Christmas continued. God coming down from that high in holy throne room, where his train filled the temple. God in Jesus Christ, leaving that to dwell with those who are of a contrite and humble spirit. And we've seen who God is. And like Isaiah, we should, as a result, have an accurate estimation of who we are in contrast. And if we do, if we get this right, who God is and who we are, we cannot help but be of a humble spirit. Amen? You can't. Uh, do you know what contrite means? I mean, that's not a word that we typically use a lot in modern English, although even in a lot of modern translations, I noticed that they leave at least one of these contrites here. Um, in the Hebrew, it's daka. And at its most basic level, it means crushed. It means crushed. 
We, we could say broken. Are we broken? Yeah. What's the evidence? You and I are broken. Sin. And you might be thinking, wait a minute, God says in his word that because he is high and lofty and he's holy, that he can't tolerate the presence of sin. Uh, there's a separation. There's this deadly division. So how can he dwell with him also that is contrite? That's broken. Well, there you have Christmas. You do. Jesus Christ, God's son, God in the flesh, left that high and holy place and he came to live among us the perfect unbroken life that God designed and demanded and then he was broken, not for his sin. He was broken by our sin, his body broken for us as he hung on the cross, uh, dying to pay the penalty for my sin-induced brokenness and for your sin-induced brokenness. And I hope you notice here at the end of verse 15, it says that God dwells with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. And that's an important addition uh, because to receive the gift of God's grace that salvation through Jesus Christ uh, is for us we have to be broken sinners who are humble, who admit, who confess their brokenness with a desire to be fixed. It doesn't do any good if you just say, I'm broken, and want to just remain broken. Uh, we need to be made new, corrected, restored, not, not to continue on in brokenness completely unaffected. And that's what of a humble spirit means. And honestly, it's what's communicated in the entire concept of being contrite as well. But then I like the New Living Translation. It communicates it this way. It says, with those whose spirits are contrite and humble, I restore the crushed spirit of the humble, and I revive the courage of those with repentant hearts in the place of contrite ones. And notice the very end of verse 15, because there's, there's important specificity here. Uh, the salvation that's in Christ, that this Christmas continued um, it is for the contrite ones. It's made available to all, <laughs> but it's received. It's received only by those with a contrite and humble spirit, the contrite ones, those with repentant hearts. You know, if we will turn to God in our brokenness, and if we'll in humility place our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, then because of what Jesus did for us, he removes the shame of our brokenness. And he gives us new courage. And he gives us new power to live in obedience to him. And before we close, I want to make sure we get the connection between the second part of verse 15 and Christmas continued for the contrite. Because look at what God promises those who are of a contrite and humble spirit. He will dwell with them. And yes, God did that for us in Jesus Christ at Christmas. He came down. He be, took, on, took on to his divine nature, uh, human nature. But that promise didn't end when Jesus ascended back up into heaven after his, his resurrection, um, uh, when he went back to that majestic Isaiah 6 throne room where he currently is. Um, and we don't have to wait. We don't. We don't have to wait until he comes back to experience this promise that I will also dwell with those who are of a contrite and humble spirit. Who do those of a contrite and humble spirit have indwelling them right now? Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. He's indwelling us. He'll never leave us or forsake us. Indwelling us because he has revived, revived the spirit of the humble and revived the heart of the contrite ones. Do you understand that those revived there, they are synonyms for being born again. That's what it means. Um, revived in the Hebrew is, is kaya, 
The root word is, is kayim. Anybody seen Fiddler on the Roof? Musical? Like one of the songs, right? To life, to life, la kayim. That's what kayim means, life. That's what it's talking about here. Um, revive means you've been quickened. You've been brought back to life. You've been given life. And isn't that what the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ does for us when we're saved? When we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ? It is God, uh, Emmanuel, dwelling with us. It's Christmas continued for the contrite. And that's what God has Paul describe. Uh, one of my favorite verses, Colossians 1, 26 and 27. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations. But now it has been revealed to his saints, to them, meaning to us, to those who've trusted in Christ. God willed to make known what are the riches of his glory in this mystery among the Gentiles. You know what the riches of his glory are? Which is Christ in you. Christ in you the hope of glory. If you want the joy of Christmas to continue all year round, it's not going to be found in cookies or in Christmas lights or in some sweater that somebody thought would look good on you. Um, the joy of Christmas is found when you and I consistently remember who God is and hopefully who we were, who we were. And the joy of Christmas can continue if we will meditate on and, and appropriate each and every day all year long the greatest gift that we were given our holy God coming to dwell with those who are of a contrite and humble spirit. Do you know what a contrite and humble spirit looks like? It looks like you believing and acting on the reality that I need you. <laughs> I need you, God. I need your life-giving word that caused me to come to Christ. I need it so that I can continue in Jesus Christ. Well, you can do that by committing to be in God's work consistently in the year ahead. The joy of Christmas will continue as God shows you in his word who he is and who you were and who he wants you to be and who you are in him, just like we learned tonight. Will you do that? Will, you, um, will the joy of Christmas continue for you? Will you be contrite and humble?